So, you know, I would say this is Armageddon. Is this the apocalyptical forces of ignorance and greed and totalitarianism? And this is the final battle. You know, we need to win this one. You're listening to The Corbett Report. Welcome, friends. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com, in a conversation that is being recorded on the 19th of November 2021 here in Japan. And uh, throughout the past couple of years of this generated crisis, I have received, as you might imagine, many, many requests to do some sort of deep dive or expose on the face of this generated crisis in the United States, Anthony Fauci. But as a Canadian in Japan, I have never felt it is that I am best situated to do such a deep dive. Luckily, I can do the next best thing, actually an even better thing. I can bring on someone who has done exactly just such an expose and has just released that to the public. I am talking about, of course, thought criminal extraordinary and uh, a proud member of the disinformation dozen. I say that ironically, of course. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. of childrenshealthdefense.org, who has just written The Real Anthony Fauci, Bill Gates, Big Pharma, and the Global War on Democracy and Public Health. Mr. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., thank you very much for joining us on the program today. And thank you for having me, James, and also thank you for all of your extraordinary work for keeping... Uh, the public informs so that we can actually maybe restore some democracy to um, to the world. Well, I appreciate that. Let's let's start by talking about the sort of the cultural moment that we're in, in which I note as we're recording this conversation, it's the 18th of November there in the United States. As we are talking, this book, the real Anthony Fauci, is currently the number three bestseller on Amazon right now, which people should not be lining the pockets of Jeff Bezos, obviously, but I think speaks to the fact that obviously something is happening in the zeitgeist right now where this information, uh, speaking obviously specifically about Anthony Fauci, but in a similar way, I would say to my Who is Bill Gates documentary, using Fauci as a hub from which we can explore many spokes of the crisis that we're living through right now. Um, obviously, people are hungry for this information at the moment, but first, can you just speak to why you decided to write this book specifically about Fauci? Uh, well, I think for the same reasons that you've been exploring, we've seen over the past uh, 20 months a coup d'etat against liberal democracy globally, and uh, one of the key players is this kind of medical cartel and medical technocracy. There's a there's an entire coalition of um, what I would I think we all starting to see as sinister forces, uh, pharmaceutical companies, the intelligence agencies, the medical bureaucracies the social media titans and the mainstream media that are all wrapped up in the, in the military, that are, if I didn't mention them, um, that are all kind of wrapped up in what the obliteration of constitutional rights globally and the subversion, the, the use of, the, of a health crisis to impose totalitarian controls. And one of the ways they've been able to get rid of it is that this kind of avuncular presence who is the face of, you know, of the 
technocracy in the face of the of the demolition, the obliteration of constitutional rights, is this avuncular, you know, uh, steady, um, uh, authoritative medical figure, Anthony Fauci, who is in the leading panjerum of the medical establishment for 50 years. He's kind of the J. Edgar Hoover of public health, but without um, J. Edgar Hoover's uh, uh, bad reputation. And he has been the trusted advisor six presidents and uh, and is a you know a person who is widely applauded and his opinions as little sense his medical opinions as little sense as they make are treated literally as gospel by the mainstream press the social media globally and you know many um, unfortunately people of my from my political party from the Democratic Party who really see him as almost a demigod and I, because of my peculiar history, which I've spent 40 years um, litigating on the issue of regulatory capture, I brought over 500 lawsuits against pharmaceutical companies and big corporations, and probably a quarter of the lawsuits that I brought have been against government agencies like the EPA that are subject to this dynamic of regulatory capture, which is very, very well documented um, in peer-reviewed publications and the popular press, but it's the mechanism by which uh, regulatory agencies become the sock puppet of the industries that they're supposed to regulate. They become really um, kind of subsidiaries of those industries. And uh, Tony Fauci is um, is kind of the spearhead of an agency that has experienced regulatory capture in a way that is on steroids. And part of the reason is that uh, these unprecedented financial entanglements between the pharmaceutical companies and the agencies that regulate that, that we do not see in the environmental space. You know, EPA is a captured agency. It does the bidding of big oil, big coal. The chemical industry, the big uh, industrial agriculture, and I spent a lot of time suing them. You know, when they did sweetheart deals to issue permits that were illegal. Um, but in the in the pharmaceutical and the medical sphere, you have um, you have these uh, financial links. For example, FDA receives forty five percent of its annual budget from pharmaceutical companies. Um, the NIH has thousands of pharmaceutical patents, and the CDC has uh, spends about $4.9 billion a year out of its $12 billion budget, so about 40%, um, close to 40%, buying and then distributing vaccines. So it really is the front man. It is the biggest vaccine company in the world. And um, and the metrics that are used within the agencies um, to uh, measure whether whether or not you're going to get promoted and whether you're going to get advanced, whether you're going to get your bonuses and salary raises, almost all of them have to do with, with, with how well you promote vaccine uptake. So people do not get rewarded in those agencies for finding problems with vaccines. They get rewarded for covering up problems. And 
Uh, and then some of the agencies directly profit from vaccine sales. For example, as I said, NIH owns thousands of medical patents, including half the patent for the Moderna vaccine. So it stands to make that agency, stands to make billions and billions, Tony Fauci's agency, billions and billions of dollars if they succeed in getting that vaccine approved, mandated, et cetera. And Tony Fauci was able to choose to designate four of his high-level employees who each get individual patent shares, and they will collect $150,000 a year for life if the Moderna vaccine is, you know, approved, which it has been. So it's a kind of, like I said, it's like if EPA got half of its budget um, from the coal industry or from the oil industry and that the amount of money that went into its budget was based upon sales of coal and oil, it would really... um, contaminate the, you know, it would subsume the regulatory, the mercantile impulses and the commercial impulses would subsume the regulatory functions. And that's exactly what's happened there. They are no longer regulatory agencies. They're not public health agencies. They are vaccine and pharmaceutical companies. And Tony Fauci has, um, you know, is the, uh, his agency in particular no longer does public health, it, he, it, and he doesn't do public health. He does pharmaceutical promotions. He will never talk about publicly about the improvements in public health that have occurred since he came into office 50 years ago. He And, and it's not a good story. We've gone from 6% of the American public having chronic disease when he entered by 1986, he became the boss, the big boss in 84 and 86, 11.6% or 11.8% of Americans had chronic disease. And today, 54%. So, and by chronic disease, I mean neurological disease, ADD, ADHD, speech delay, language like tics, Tourette's syndrome, narcolepsy, ASD, autism, allergic diseases like peanut allergies, food allergies, asthma, anaphylaxis, and then the autoimmune diseases like juvenile diabetes and rheumatoid arthritis. When Tony Fauci took over that agency, nobody had even heard of those diseases, really. You know, one in 10,000 people my age have autism. One in every 34 children, kids, people my kids' age have full-blown autism. And, um, and, you know, Tony Fauci's job is to make sure that doesn't happen, to find the sources of those chronic diseases. Where did food allergies suddenly appear in 1989? Why did we see all these people with celiac disease and peanut allergies beginning in that year? Why did we see rheumatoid arthritis and juvenile diabetes? Clearly, there is an environmental toxin. Genes do not cause epidemics. They may provide the vulnerability, but you need an environmental toxin. And um, and his job is to identify the toxin so that we can then eliminate it. But that's not what he does. And as a result, we've seen this dramatic explosion and decline in public health. You know, we, we have the worst infant mortality rate of the top 25 nations. When he came into office, we were the, we were the healthiest people. Today, we're the unhealthiest people in the industrialized world. We're 79th in terms of, you know, the overall uh, public health metrics. 
we we consume three times the pharma the pharmaceutical products uh, of any other European, uh, Western nation. We pay the highest prices, and we are by far the sickest. And it's it's largely, as I show in the book, Tony Fauci is responsible. He's not the solely responsible. He, however, could have prevented the whole thing. He could have. His job was to identify those problems and and you know and lead the way to uh, to eliminating them. And he could have done that. And that's not what he's doing. He he's turned that agency into a incubator for pharmaceutical products. So between 2009 and 2016, there were some 240 products approved by FDA, new drugs, and that all came out of Tony Fauci's shop. Oh, what he does with, he has a seven, he has a $6.1 billion budget, which he distributes to colleges and universities to do drug research for various diseases. He has another $1.7 billion that comes from the military that essentially is to do bioweapons research. And that's why he had to do the gain of function. He was locked into that. 68% of his personal salary comes from doing that military bioweapons research, which used to be called dual use. It's illegal for, the, for, uh, for anybody to do bioweapons development and manufacturing. But there's an exception in the 1972 Act or research and development that is for dual use. In other words, it's research that could be used for bio, that is useful for developing bioweapons, but it also is useful for vaccines. So if you can say I'm doing vaccine research, then you can do bioweapons research, backdoor bioweapons research. And that's what he did in after the anthrax attacks in 2001. The Pentagon and the CIA began pouring money into bioweapons research. And the Pentagon was nervous about doing it itself because of the ban, the prohibition on it. So um, those cohorts began uh, funneling money to Tony Fauci to do it because he could legitimately say, well, I'm not really doing bioweapons research, I'm doing vaccine research. And then a bunch of his little bugs escaped in 2014 from his lab and from other people's labs. And 300 scientists signed a letter to President Obama asking them to stop Tony Fauci. And that's when he began funneling a lot of this money to the Wuhan lab and partnering with Chinese military scientists and teaching them not only how to... uh, how to develop, how to take bad coronaviruses and make them transmissible and pathogenic and virulent to human beings. But also his specialty, one of his chief scientists, Ralph Barrick from the University of North Carolina, developed a um, a technique called a no, the noceum technique for hiding the engineer, evidence of the human engineering of those viruses. And um, and Barrick, who was funded by Fauci, then shared that research with Xingli Ji, the Chinese scientist known as Bad Lady, who then was able to master the technique. And, you know, they, these people are all publishing on this stuff and they weren't embarrassed about it. And the Chinese were very, very open that they were this was weapons research. This, they don't they didn't pretend it was vaccine research. They were like, this is weapons research. And we are glad we're able to.
do it. And they had, Fauci was giving them millions and millions of dollars, but the biggest contributor was the CIA, which gave uh, about $69 million through USAID to do that kind of research. And then the Pentagon um, through DARPA, which uh, gave about $39 million to do that. And the three of them were all working in tandem. U.S. agencies with smaller amounts coming from Homeland Security and the other agencies. And they were teaching the Chinese how to make, how to weaponize bat viruses. Well, the J. Edgar Hoover of, well, let, let's stop for a moment because describing Anthony Fauci as the J. Edgar Hoover of public health is such a perfect description that I'm going to steal it because I think it gets to the heart of what we're discussing here, which is that this man has somehow or other managed to take over a relative backwater of the Washington bureaucracy, as you point out, in 1984. Who was talking about NIAID? No one. It was a nothing agency. It is now... It was because, because infectious disease had basically stopped causing mortalities after the Spanish flu. And the Spanish flu was not a flu. And as Tony Fauci himself wrote in 2008, he really documented the fact it was a bacteriological infection. So there's no reason to be scared of it anymore because it can be obliterated in two days by antibiotics. So really in this century, you'd see, you've seen the complete decline of infectious disease mortalities. And by 1980, the Reagan administration Infectious disease mortalities were such an infinitesimal threat to Americans that the Reagan administration was talking about abolishing NIAID and CDC a year. And in those agencies, they were talking about, we got to find a pandemic in order to justify our existence. And I show in the book, again and again, they fabricated pandemics. They fabricated a flu pandemic in 1976, and then in 2005, an avian flu pandemic, a swine flu in 2009, complete fabrication. In 2005, one person died in a pandemic, and they spent $40 billion on vaccines and had mandatory vaccine programs globally. And um, you know, and they do this again, and I show again and again. Zika was a phony, Tony Fauci's phony pandemic. There was Zika was completely not associated with microcephaly, and he went to Congress and said Zika is causing kids to be born with small heads, and he got two point two billion dollars for his agency and it, to get a vaccine. And as it turns out, my Zika was no threat to anybody and definitely did not cause microcephaly. It was all fabricated. And he's done this again and again and again, the same playbook, to use it to clamp down totalitarian controls and to sell pharmaceutical products to use these fake pandemics. And I'm not saying COVID is fake because it isn't, but it is. The response to it has not been a medical response. It's been a militarized and a monetized response that is very, very much pre-calculated. Well, let's get into the specifics of how this type of um, scare can be manipulated, because that's something that we need to wrap our minds around to understand what's happening right now. And in chapter four of your book, in fact, several chapters deal with Fauci's uh, 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 involvement in the AIDS 
crisis and AZT and that scandal. But in chapter four of your book, you specifically go through how the AIDS crisis that Fauci was at the helm of there in the 1980s was essentially the template for what was to come during the generated crisis of the past two years. And you talk about pumping up pandemic fears to lay the groundwork for larger budgets and greater powers, incriminating an elusive pathogen, fanning hysteria by exaggerating disease transmissibility, periodically stoking waning fear levels by warning of mutant super strains and future surges, etc., etc. There's a list of about 20 different ways in which the AIDS crisis can be seen as a template for what has happened over the past couple of years. Can you elaborate a bit about that? Well, what, you know, one of the things that he did during the AIDS crisis, he captured, he got, he, he, he was able to go through a struggle with National Cancer Institute because the initial signal of AIDS was Kaposi's sarcoma, which is a cancer. And so it, it, the, the, the AIDS went to the National Cancer Institute, and he was able to use um, studies that show that maybe it's a viral infection caused by HIV to get control of all that new funding. And he went up to billions of dollars, and that really made him the boss. But what he did, he didn't know how to develop drugs, and NIAID had no capacity at that time to develop, to develop drugs. And National Cancer Institute did, and knew how to have big labs, and it was developing cancer drugs. His agency didn't know how, so it really had to rely on a private pharmaceutical company, um, uh, which is now Glaxo, is then welcomed. Uh, Barbara's welcome. That drug that appeared to kill HIV. It killed HIV because it killed everything that it touched. It was a, a really toxic chemotherapy drug. It was so toxic, it killed all the mice in the, in the chemotherapy experiment. And the guy who developed it actually thrown it on a junk pile and didn't even patent it because he said this can never be used. Chemotherapy well, you do, you give it for two weeks and it kills every cell in the DNA in human bodies, but you're hoping that it kills the tumor first before it kills the person. It was Tony Fauci's idea to give that chemotherapy job um, to people for life, which of course it means their life was going to be extremely short, which is exactly what happened. And in order, he had to shorten the experiment, the, the the clinical trial, because within six weeks, it was killing everybody in the clinical trial. And the way he kept them alive is by pumping the people in the in the AZT group with daily, in some cases, daily blood transfusions and not giving the transfusions to the HIV infected people in the placebo group. Transfusions kept them alive, allowed him to claim this was a miracle drug, and he got it approved in record time. He, you know, it was a rush, emergency use approval, and, you know, at the end he declares it's so effective that it's unethical to uh, to continue the trials, and we're going to unblind them and give it to all the people in the placebo group, exactly what he did with the vaccines. Then he... Um, then it required him, by that time, there were community doctors all over America that were finding repurposed drugs that were really effective against the symptoms of, of AIDS, the things that actually killed people, the pneumonia and all, you know, all of these other symptoms that killed people. And he had to, in order to get his ACT approved for emergencies, he had to kill those drugs. 
So he suppressed them. He punished doctors who were, he wouldn't, um, he wouldn't allow FDA to approve any of them. He wouldn't allow fast track approval. My uncle was fighting with him and fighting with him. Ted Kennedy, who was the chair of the health committee, to force him to do fast track approvals for those, uh, for those drugs that the community, these wonderful community doctors were using. And what happened is people who had AIDS were quickly recognizing that AZT was killing their friends who got on it. And they, they were desperate to get these other drugs. And so they had these buyers clubs that popped up all over the country. And the movie Dallas Buyers Club is, it was originally written um, about Tony Fauci as the villain because he was the one that was preventing all these people from getting their hands on these working medications that because they there was no profits in them for the drug industry. And so the, you had these buyer's clubs where people would go to Mexico or they'd go to Europe or they'd go any Canada and they'd get these drugs and bring them back and distribute them to people. And so it's the same thing he did now with suppressing ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, monocloidal steroids, you know, all of the things that we know are very effective against COVID, anti-inflammatories, the anticoagulants, and, you know, the antibiotics that work, actually work, vitamin D, the zinc, and all of those things get suppressed. So there's only one solution. Back then it was AZT for AIDS. Today it's the vaccine. It's always a deadly experimental, you know, drug that that, that wipes out the the and that he has to abbreviate the um, the uh, clinical trials and declare it's a success. He he's a it's a you know it's a really uh, and that that's just one of the times he's done that again and again and again and again throughout his long career. Right, as as you say in the book, it's a well-worn dog-eared playbook that he's playing from, be, precisely because it has worked in the past and it's continuing to work to this day. As you say, his avuncular attitude and uh, it sort of deflects all the criticism that never seems to to really land on him. But you you paint a very vivid p- picture in this book of a particular instance of how Fauci has wielded his power over his fiefdom to suppress dissent against him. And that was the uh, story of Dr. Peter Duesberg. Tell people about the, how the career of Peter Duesberg was completely derailed by Fauci. Well, Duesberg was probably, was the most brilliant virologist in the world. He'd won more NIH awards than anybody else. He'd won virtually every award that could be won in virology. And it, he was clearly going to win the Nobel Prize for finding an oncogene, which is a cancer-causing uh, gene, and which he discovered and it launched an, an entire discipline in virology. And then he himself went back and looked at it, and he said, this doesn't make any sense from a, an evolutionary point of view. And he wrote the paper that exploded his own theory and, and, you know, and lost him the Nobel Prize, but he didn't care about anything except integrity. And he was really, uh, this, he, he is, he's still alive. Um, this incredible um, and highly, highly respected scientist. And he, um, he did not believe that the deaths that were being attributed to a AIDS in the late in the 80 from 81 to 84 he did not believe that they were being caused by HIV he believed that they were uh, largely the result of 
of uh, poppers and a whole constellation of uh, of drugs of um, of heroin, speed, you know, methadone, cocaine that were part of the fast track gay life, post Stonewall gay lifestyle. And if you looked at now, you know, now what he was saying is now accepted science. It's now Kaposi's sarcoma, which was AIDS, is no longer even listed as a symptom of AIDS. It's now, you know, understood that it is an environmental uh, result of, and that it's caused by poppers, um, which is amyl nitrate, which was a ubiquitous uh, drug that was used in the gay community. It was sold in every gay bar. And at the end of the night, the gay bars would, you know, declare last call for alcohol, last call for poppers. It was sold in the bathhouses and the nightclubs and everything else. And it was, and all the people, 100% of the people originally diagnosed with AIDS had, um, were popper users. And so uh, he, Duisburg went, you know, did this exhaustive research and published a groundbreaking paper and then became a, a huge critic of Fauci. And I show in my book how Fauci was able to use uh, strategically placed money, his control of all of this research. He, you know, uh, $6.1 billion in research grants to get the universities to shut him out, to get him denied all awards, invitations to conferences, to punish his graduate students so nobody would take his courses and to destroy his career. And he succeeded in doing that. He really isolated and um, he made uh, Duisburg a pariah and he refused to debate him. He refused, you know, he silenced him. And that's the problem, whether, you know, whether Duisburg was correct or not, I don't reach a, um, a conclusion on that. I say specifically, I don't know. But Duisburg's arguments make a lot of sense. And if you read them, his and his book is absolutely persuasive. That doesn't mean there, there's you know, tens of thousands of articles on AIDS and HIV, and I haven't read them all. So I, I'm not eligible or competent to make a judgment. But what I do know is that science is dynamic, and there ought to be debate. And anytime somebody says there's a consensus in science, that person is a liar and they're manipulating you because they're, the, the, the phrase scientific consensus is oxymoronic. I was part of the legal team on the Monsanto case, you know, where we won $2.2 billion. We won three cases in a row, the last one, $2.2 billion, and then we settled with, un, you know, on Roundup. And in that case, there... Monsanto came to court with um, top scientists in the country from Harvard and Stanford. And they made very, very convincing uh, presentations on what they said was consensus science. And then we brought up our scientists from Harvard and Stanford who were looking at the same data and coming up with a different conclusion. And they were under cross-examination. We were able to prove that their scientists were wrong, ours were right, and persuade a jury to give these huge judgments. And, you know, so medicine is about consultation, it's about debate, it's about conversation. It's not about one guy standing up there and saying, this is the answer. And if we want good policies for everything in a democracy, we need a free flow of information and we need 
ideas to triumph in the marketplace. And what Fauci has succeeded in doing in this country is really shutting down debate completely and, and this extraordinary capacities that he's developed relationships with the media, the social media, and, you know, the whole army of the medical cartel and intelligence agencies to literally shut down debate on any issue that he wants to simply proclaim, you know, as truth. Well, uh, let's let's move on to another part. I know we have limited time today, and I want to cover what you talk about in chapter seven of your book, because I'm sure everyone by this point has heard, and if not, they should at least look it up, about Beaglegate, as it has been termed, and the horrific experiments on uh, animals that were funded through Fauci's uh, agency. But not a lot of people have probably heard about what you cover in chapter seven of this book, Dr. Fauci, Mr. Hyde, Nyad's barbaric and illegal experiments on children, which for me personally, as a father of two beautiful, wonderful, healthy children who I love more than life itself. This chapter was the most difficult to read through, but perhaps you can share some of these, this information with the listeners. Well, it's part of a pair of chapters, one of them about his experiments on children with these novel chemotherapy drugs that they were testing out for AIDS in the, other, in the United States, and then the other one on children and pregnant mothers in Africa, and they were both just equally horrific. And in the United States, he, the only way he got, um, most of his experiment, or he's targeted throughout his career, blacks and Hispanics for these kind of medical experiments. And in this case, he was able to, to get control of foster homes in seven states and essentially turn these pharmaceutical companies loose on these children. And they, the, the, uh, the experiments that they were conducted were absolutely barbaric. And the children were tortured. They did not have legal representation, which is illegal. They, were, they did not have guardians. You cannot put a child into a... Um, into a clinical trial in this country without an independent guardian. And, and he made sure that those kids did not have guardians. And they were literally tortured to death. You know, the children who refused, who, who stopped taking the drugs because they were so, um, uh, they made them so sick. Many of these kids did not have HIV. So they were getting no benefit from these drugs. They were just being used as guinea pigs. And they, um, and the children who refused or were non-compliant were sent to Columbia Hospital and had feeding tubes installed in them so that uh, the drug companies could continue to administer the drugs even when the kids fought back. And at least 85 of these kids died during the experiments. Uh, Celia Farber, who was an incredible researcher who worked with me on this chapter in the book, actually found a graveyard in up in the Hudson Valley, north of New York City, in Hawthorne, New York. It's called Gates of Heaven Cemetery, where there was a, a pit. Um, it was covered by a astroturf carpet, and it had hundreds and hundreds of tiny coffins haphazardly piled in that pit with the bodies of these children. And... Um, we don't know where a lot of those kids came from, but we know that at least 85 of them, at least, were, came, were, the, were casualties of Tony Fauci's experiments. And then 
after New York, he took that roadshow to Africa and ended up killing a lot of pregnant mothers in Africa and, um, you know, getting away with it because of the the weakness, the power of his agency, his contacts with, he was, you know, his whole thing fell apart at one point, but he was able to, to use his contacts with President Bush to really to get him out of a jam. And I, you know, I talk about that. I, I give detail there, as you know, there's 2,200 footnotes in the book. Every statement in there is sourced and cited to government databases or to peer reviewed publications or, uh, to, you know, to good sources. So, um, uh, the, the story is incredible. I think the most important story in the book is in the last chapter, which is called Germ Games, which talks about um, the orchestrated, planned use of pandemics to clamp down totalitarian control. And it was a surprise to me. It was all new research. Nobody has seen this before. But the deep, deep involvement of the intelligence agencies in, um, you know, in pandemic planning, which is weird because, you know, why is the CIA is not a health agency? Um, it, uh, it doesn't do public health. It does coup d'etat. It's, uh, and a lot of people know about Event 201, which was this extraordinary pandemic planning event, a simulation that was put on in October of 2019. It was hosted by Bill Gates um, and by April Haynes, who was the former deputy director of the CIA. She's now the head of the National Security Agency, the top spy in our country. And the people were, it's an extraordinary group of people. They were, they were uh, simulating a coronavirus pandemic worldwide in October 2019. So the, the, uh, we now know from the National Security Agency is that the pandemic almost certainly escaped from the Wuhan lab on September 12th and was circulating already in Wuhan a month before this pandemic took place and the Chinese knew about it. And at the simulation is George Gao, who is the head of the Chinese CDC. And then they have representatives from the drug companies, the social media companies, the mainstream media companies like Bloomberg and Washington Post and the health agencies. And they're simulating a pandemic. And they're not simulating how do you get vitamin D to people and how do you get zinc and how do you stockpile, you know, kerosene and how do you create grids of, to hook the 11 million doctors in the world to figure out what protocols are working and what repurposed medications are working? How do you quarantine the sick and not the healthy? How do you preserve the constitution? And the none of that was discussed. It was all, how do you use the pandemic as a pretense to clamp down totalitarian controls and obliterate de and deconstruct democracy? And the last simulation which is called Seminar 4, was all about how do you get the social media companies to uh, censor any discussion of a lab-generated coronavirus epidemic. It's pretty amazing when you, like, you're thinking, do they think we're stupid? When you read this, you can't. What I found out in the book was that that was not a one-off event, that they had 
are probably around 20 of these events I document. I think 14 of them beginning or in 2000. They're called Operation Lockstep. It's how do you get all of the country, all the liberal democracies in the world to pivot and turn into dictatorships overnight. And they're all, every one of them, many of them are, are sponsored by Gates and a Johns Hopkins, you know, population center. Um, but of all of them, the one thing they all have in common is a huge, huge presence by the CIA. And they are all orchestrated. They're all, the scripts are written by them. Uh, there's famous people involved in many of them. Madeleine Albright, Senator Frank Church, uh, um, other senators and Congressman Gates, and they involved hundreds of thousands of people. So there were, you know, they involved frontline workers from not only health workers, but from the utilities, from the oil companies, from the police, firefighters in, in all the cities around our country, Canada, the United States, or Europe, Australia, and they did them all simultaneously in all these countries. And it's really chilling, I think, for people to read. Absolutely, yes. And I was impressed by the thoroughness of that chapter, actually. You co uncovered a lot of detail about a lot of these different drills, going all the way back to Dark Winter, which I'm sure my audience will be familiar with by now. But you have a lot of detail in there and how that then relates to the anthrax attacks of a few months later that were miraculously predicted by several of the people associated with Dark Winter. Um, the day that the anthrax attack happened, there were Senate hearings on the Dark Winter anthrax attacks. Yes. They had prepared the whole country for an anthrax attack weeks before the anthrax attack. And it yes. turns out the anthrax attack, although it, it, they blamed Saddam Hussein and we went to war, it turned out when the FBI you know, completed its investigations. It came from the US, one of three U.S. military labs. And I, you know, talk about who the identities of the people who were, you know, highly likely to have been involved. Exactly right. And uh, you, you, um, you talk about the top-off drills, which I haven't heard talked about since the 2000s. Uh, you even brought up one that I had never heard of yet, from Mars 2017. So I'm learning new stuff from that chapter as well. So uh, lots, and as you say, 2,200 footnotes in this book. It is a treasure trove for researchers like myself, and I'm sure I will be making use of that research in my uh, coming uh, reports. So thank you for doing that research. But let's take a look, step back to sort of the bigger picture of what, the, what this book is about and what it represents, because hopefully, I would sincerely hope that this best-selling book will have an effect towards, hopefully, uh, exposing Anthony Fauci and what he has been involved with over the years, the blood that is on his hands, and hopefully then, of course, prompting a resignation and a disgrace of that career. I would sincerely hope that, but I would assume that's not the end goal of all of this, because as I'm sure you know, if you got rid of a Fauci, there'd be a hundred mini Fauci's willing to take his place. Um, so what what is that end goal? What are we actually reaching towards when we're confronting this coming biosecurity state? Well, you know, listen, I talk about the Milgram experiment in this too, about how the, how the, the intelligence agencies and the health agencies have really developed these extraordinary techniques for, for using fear to disable critical thinking. And, you know, if you look at the whole rationale behind this pandemic, all of these rationales collapse when you look at them. Why, you know, why are we mandating vaccines? 
that don't tra- prevent transmission. What is the possible reason? And and um, that's just one of the many, many like absurdities of what we're doing today. But people who are subsumed in the orthodoxy, which is which is the product of orchestrated fear, misinformation, and propaganda, need to be woken up. And you have, as they did learn in the Milgram experiment, 33% of people will violate their own conscience, their own deeply held values, if they're ordered to do so by a medical authority. And, you know, this was a, I was able to connect for the first time the Milgram experiment to um, to the CIA, to the CIA ties. And, you know, it, it, it's one of the things they learn. And then you put everybody under house arrest and you impose this kind of Stockholm syndrome that makes people grateful to their captors and believing that the only way to survival is through absolute obedience and compliance. Uh, those fear levels keep people in this state of mass psychosis or hypnosis. And what we need to do, James, and I know this is what you've been trying to do for years in your work and and me as well, is just to wake people up. Because, as you know, liberals in our country do not believe in censorship and they do not believe, you know, in mandatory medical products and giving things to children that are not proven to be good for them and all of these things. They don't blindly trust Big Pharma, right? Or the intelligence agencies, right? goes against all of their values, all of their expressed aspirations of the party. And it's a war on the poor. Let's face it. You know, there there are many, many more people have died. And, you know, we made this deal in 1990, early 1990s, this globalism of telling the developing world, if you hook into our our economies, you start producing commodities rather than subsistent farming, we're going to lift you all out of poverty. One year, we shut down the whole global economy, and they we tricked them into joining it, and now they can't sell any of their product. There's 100 million children around the globe that are put into starvation or you know food insecurity that is going to disable them for a lifetime with malnutrition their IQs, everything else, their functionality, is far worse tragedy, far more deaths than from the lockdown than from COVID. And they're desolate young people as opposed to older people. And, you know, in, in where I live, the, the death rate from COVID in my community, which is Brentwood, is one third the death rate in Compton. All these liberals who think, you know, they're doing the right thing by putting on masks and staying in their house, they're killing people in the poor neighborhoods who are being just destroyed by this lockdown, and they're not making those connections. And what I think we need to do is to wake people back up. And, you know, once they wake up, then they'll do the work for us of restoring democracy. But we need to wake them up. And the other side knows the peril for them in that. And that's why they're going out of their way to silence us, because they cannot afford to have those people woken up. It won't just be disgrace and firing for Fauci. It would be Nuremberg trials. And, you know, playing rock This is hockey. it. This is, yes, the charges that, that you d- not only bring, but document and really prosecute in this book are 
extremely serious. And if we take them seriously, yes, there are some serious consequences to what's coming here. So having said that, I fully agree and I'm on board with that agenda. Having said that, I opened today's conversation with a sarcastic reference to the disinformation dozen, which you've been enshrined in, um, because obviously my audience, my regular audience, will see that for the, the nonsense that it is. However, even within our our movement, question mark, of people who supposedly would be on our side, I guarantee you there will be people, even in my own audience, in in the comment section screaming that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is, is a controlled opposition and James is a shill for having interviewed him. Uh, not really recognizing that we are in, I think, the most profound peril towards human liberty that we have seen in our lifetime, facing the construction of a biosecurity state that is going to undermine all of the, the tenets of Western jurisprudence that we have taken for granted all our lives. We are in the fight for our life, and people are busy fighting each other more so than fighting the real enemies here. And I want to direct people to a speech that you gave uh, at the Ron Paul Institute in uh, Washington, recently, a uh, pandemic and the road to totalitarianism, where you, I think, reach out and, sh and, and, and make that call for unity. Can you, can you share some, some of your thoughts on that? I would go even farther than, than you just went, because I think this is a historical jeopardy um, to humanity that we've never seen before. I mean, you know, the Black Plague and, you know, World War II um, are, you know, are, are arguably rivals for it. But I would argue this is the worst thing that's ever happened to humanity because the, the essential ambition of the totalitarian state is to control not just um, conduct, uh, self-expression and, and thought, and for the first time in history, because of the technological revolution, the capacity for totalitarian forces to literally control every aspect of, of human expression and even human thought is now unprecedented. You know, they, you know, Bill Gates brags that he's going to be able to watch with his 60,000 satellites every square inch of the earth 24 hours a day you know they at least in other parts of history you could run and you could hide and you could you know collect forces and, and begin a, an opposition and we can't do that anymore and the chinese you know have already deployed this vast array of facial recognition that is at that that claims to be capable of reading guilt on people of looking at facial expressions from a distance and and deciding whether somebody is guilty. So it, it's literally pre-crime. It's like Minority Report, and that's where we are today. And you know, in, in you know, in Hitler's time, you could run for a border. You could. There was ways that a certain number of people were going to escape and they were going to regroup and. You could, and there were there was opposition from other countries, and today we have this situation where the, the U.S. military and the CIA are conspiring with the Chinese CIA, and or the Chinese CDC and military scientists developing bioweapons together, and then lying, conspiring to lie to the public. You have U.S. federal officials who we know we have communications between Fauci and the Chinese 
instructing him what to do and what to say in order to hide the origins of this virus. So we have U.S. federal officials who are conspiring with Chinese military officials to hide truth from the American public. And there's, and you know, and then you look at Australia and Canada, these, you know, these irreplaceable democracies and are now totalitarian regimes where they're literally building concentration camps. So, you know, I would say this is Armageddon. This is the apocalyptical forces of ignorance and greed and totalitarianism. And this is the final battle. You know, we need to win this one. I agree with you. This is the fight for the future of the human species, because we are at that level where totalitarianism on a scale never before imaginable is now not only imaginable, but is being implemented. And if we spend our time fighting with each other, then we then we lose and we can't afford to lose this. So I I really hope that people will uh, understand the gravity of this situation. And I think you lay out a good set, a good chunk of that in this book. It's ostensibly about Anthony Fauci, but as I say, that is just the hub from which you can explore many different spokes. Finally, finally, before I let you go, I would be remiss in my duties if I did not ask you about something that's in the news at the moment. I'll note a couple of years ago, um, myself and James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com were covering on New World Next Week an Instagram post that you made in which you were talking about the compelling evidence that Sirhan Sirhan was not the murderer of your father, but it was uh, Thane Eugene Caesar. And I will link to that uh, edition of New World Next Week if people are interested but obviously, right now, as we are recording this conversation, I believe uh, Sir Han Sirhan is still waiting to hear whether or not he is going to be granted parole. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, Sir Han Sirhan obviously took some shots at my father, but it's also very clear that he did not fire the shots that killed my father. And Anybody even looks at the at, at Thomas Noguchi, who's a you know the, the classic coroner, iconic coroner, who did not believe that uh, Sirhan could have killed my father. Sirhan, there were seventy-seven eyewitnesses in the kitchen. Sirhan was six feet in front of my father at all times. He fired two shots at my father. Both of them, we know what happened. One of them hit Paul Schrade, the UAW leader, in the head who's still alive and fighting for Sirhan now, because he knows that Sirhan did not kill my father. He's one of my father's closest friends. The other one hit a door jam behind my father and was later recovered by the police and then destroyed. Um, Sirhan was then grabbed by Rosie Greer, Rafer Johnson, and four other men, and who created a dog pile. They put his arm behind him, and they could not get the gun out of him. He had like a superhuman strength and he fired the six other bullets and emptied the chamber. All those bullets hit people. So all the bullets are accounted for. My father was shot by four bullets from behind. One went through his shoulder pad, one went into his neck, his spinal cord. One was fired directly behind his ear into his head and one into his back. The ones that went through his body were fired at an upward trajectory and went into the ceiling. The one lodged in his brain, and we have that, and we know it does not match their hands' guns. Thomas Noguchi's autopsy found that, which was is called in the medical literature the perfect autopsy because he did not want to happen to my dad what had happened in Dallas, 
where everybody had questions. He flew in the best coroners from all over the country to sit in the theater, including the chief coroner from all the armed services, each one of the services, the Marines, the Army, the Navy, Air Force, to sit in the theater and watch him. And what he found was that all four of those shots were contact shots. In other words, the barrel of the gun was touching my father's skin or clothing. They each left carbon tattoos in his skin. And that um, whoever fired those shots was standing directly behind my father, holding the gun against him. And the man, man who was in that position was Eugene Thane Caesar, who was the security guard who had my father's elbow um, and who directed them toward the table where Sir Anne was. Sir Anne was clearly a distractor. And everybody was looking at Sir Anne while these shots were fired. As my, my father must have known that uh, Caesar was shooting him because he turned and pulled off Caesar's clip on tie. And he, he turned slightly. He was always facing Sir Hand. But as he fell and, and fell, he had Caesar's tie in his hand. He fell on Caesar. And when Caesar got up, he was seen by a dozen witnesses with his gun out. He later claimed that he had pulled the gun out to fire at Surahan, but uh, that he's changed that story again and again and again, and, and he disposed of the gun and lied about it. And, you know, Lisa Pease, when she did her book on my dad this year, uh, which is a wonderful book, um, it's made some controversial allegations, but I think her research is really impeccable, and she was able to find employment applications of Caesar in which he admits that he worked for the CIA. His ostensible job was in the Lockheed plant in Los Angeles. He had gotten the security job a couple of days earlier, um, and, you know, he had been the one who directed my dad toward Sirhan. Oh, and as you know, the police collected all the photographs that were taken in that room that night, 2,800 photographs, and destroyed them before the trial, before uh, Sirhan's trial. They switched bullets from, you know, to make it appear that the bullet that killed my father was from Caesar's gun. They used a fake bullet that was fired from a gun in uh, their repository, and the, the uh, LAPD... Uh, police who were specifically assigned to investigate his death were all CIA people who had been pulled out of service in Latin America and brought up to serve on this, you know, special unit. It was called Special Unit Senator. And, uh, you know, they and they did a cover-up. They certainly did. At the, the very least, there is no doubt that there was a cover-up involved. And I will... Uh, uh, you raised Lisa Pease's new book, which I know about. I haven't read, so I will read that and I'll hopefully get her on to talk about the case in more detail. But I wanted to bring people up to date on that. Obviously, uh, again, as we sit here recording this conversation, Sir Han Sirhan is potentially going to be released on parole, so obviously in the news at the moment. Um, other than that, uh, most importantly for today's conversation, how do people get a copy of this new book, The Real Anthony Fauci? And please don't say Jeff Bezos and Amazon. <laughs> I will not. The best place you can get it from our point of view 
is from your local bookstore. You can do that by walking in or you can go online. Most of them have online presences. But the reason that's important is because the New York Times does not pay attention to we need to get on the New York Times list, which we should, because we sold, you know, a huge and uh, unprecedented number in the first week. So we should, if the New York Times is honest, they will put us number one bestseller. But they they do their list in a strange way, which is they base it on sales, not on Amazon, but on independent bookstores. So if you can buy the book from an independent bookstore, it is going to help us a lot. And we actually have a list on our website, on CHDA Children's Health Defense website of the stores that are the best ones to purchase it from. And it's like the Harvard Coop and, you know, that wonderful uh, bookstore in Portland. I forget the name of it, but it's I've been there many times. But they're, the you know, the big sort of well-known independent bookstores around the country. That's the best place you can do but. If you want to know what you can do for the resistance right now, buy a copy of the book. I make no money on the book. I don't know all my profits to children's health events, but we need people to read the book. We need the media, which shuts us out on everything else, to, to have to acknowledge that this is a bestseller and that people are reading it and um, you know that there's an alternate story narrative out there that people are interested in and force the, the, the mainstream media to confront that fact. And the best way to do that, you know, if you have family members who don't agree with you, like me, uh, if you have friends who don't agree with you, one of the things that you can do is send them this book for Christmas. And, and the next time they disagree with you, just say, have you read that book? So uh, it's it's something everybody can do. And um, I know we have a lot of overlapping uh, friends. And you've been out there longer than anybody, and you've educated a lot of the world, James. And I have a really deep, deep regret of gratitude um, for you, for everything you've done, the deep, deep level of research. But more important than anything else, your reliability as a researcher. I really have tremendous respect for you know, your precision and your um, your discipline about making sure that what you write about is as close to truth as we can is then available. And, you know, I think all of us at our best are engaged in a search for existential truths, you know, and um, and people right now have their minds clouded by fear, by propaganda, and you are really a you're a beacon of clarity in a world that is filled with confusion and lies right now. So thank you. Well, I very much appreciate those words. I am just a flawed human being doing my best, but I do do my best to be accurate when I can be. So I do very much appreciate that acknowledgement. And I will, of course, direct people once again to Children's Health Defense, where uh, obviously not just your work, but the work of uh, teams of researchers and writers are doing diligent efforts that we often highlight on New World Next Week. So I will direct people there and to the book itself. I think we'll leave today's conversation there, but hopefully we can have you back on in the future to continue talking about this, the most important event of our lifetime. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, James. <laughs>